Welcome back, Donuts. Welcome to another episode of Fright Dough, your weekly fix of true crime. I'm your girl, Gina. And on every episode, I always want to remind listeners that the stories that I cover on this podcast may be difficult to hear. However, it is very important to shine light on these cases and remember the victims who were affected. Let me say this before we get started. I really did miss y'all. I felt that I was the only person that wasn't invited to the party. I know I haven't uploaded on Saturday, but that's only because I've been working extra hours and doing overtime at my job. That's the only thing that's going to keep me from recording. In a small Indiana town in the 1980s, a remarkable story of courage and determination unfolded. Meet Ryan White, an ordinary teenager who faced an extraordinary diagnosis that would change his life and his community forever. As we journey through his remarkable story, we'll witness the challenges, the support, and the unwavering spirit that turned a young boy into an enduring symbol of hope and advocacy. This is Fried Doe, True Crime Podcast, and this is Courage, the Ryan White Story. Ryan was born Ryan Wayne Wright on December 6, 1971 to Jeannie and Hubert Wayne Wright. They met and knew each other in high school, and when they both graduated, they got a job at the same factory in town. They started dating, and later they got married in 1968. Ryan was born in Kokomo, Indiana, and right away Jeannie thought that she had a basketball player on her hands because she said that he was long and thin, but later found out that Ryan was a hemophiliac, a hereditary disorder that prevents blood from clotting. Even minor injuries and small cuts and scrapes can lead to severe blood loss. At the time, but then they come back and said that you know they can't get him to stop bleeding. They put ointments and all kind of stitches and everything on him to try to get it to stop bleeding. Finally, they transferred him to Methodist Hospital in Indianapolis, and that's where the hematologist told me that Ryan was a severe hemophiliac with less than one percent clotting, and said it was very serious. He told me that he'd never be able to play contact sports and he'd never never be able to have any uh, surgeries. They said if he's ever, ever in a car accident, the chances of him living will be zero. But the greater concern for hemophiliacs is internal bleeding, which in over time can lead to damaged organs and joints. During Ryan's circumcision, doctors couldn't stop the bleeding. Normally it takes blood to clot about 10 minutes. However, it took Ryan's blood about 30 to 40 minutes. Today, we know hemophilia is caused by inactive or inadequate supply of certain blood clotting proteins. You can't catch hemophilia. It is usually passed down through genetics, and the woman is usually the one that passes it down. Usually, it only passed down to only boys, and just one out of 10,000 will get it. The White family has no clue how Jeannie got it because no one in the family has it as far as anyone knows. So playing basketball was out of the question because if Ryan got hurt, he could start bleeding internally from a busted vein. There is no cure for hemophiliac. Hemophilia is something that Ryan and his family just had to manage. While the doctors was telling Jeannie what Ryan couldn't do and couldn't have, Jeannie just wanted her son's childhood to be as normal as possible. So she allowed him to do just about anything. Ryan had a little sister named Andrea who was very important to him. 
She was very bossy and they argued just as any other brother and sister would. She never backed down to a fight from him. He said, but when they fought, she never heard him. So he knew that she loved him. And that's so sweet. I love that. He enjoyed sports. He liked cars. And he was also a collector of comic books and G.I. Joe figures. Doctors told Jeannie that hemophiliacs in cases as severe like Ryan's only lived to be to the age of 14 or 15 years old. And because of his illness, Ryan had endless visits to the hospitals, but that never got Ryan down, nor did it make him feel sorry for himself. He said, if you feel bad and sorry for yourself, you won't notice anything in life to enjoy. Being a hemophiliac and doing things that normally boys do, Ryan got hurt a lot. And in spite his condition, Ryan was able to live a fairly normal childhood, mostly thanks to being extra careful on the playground, as well as a new medication that allowed hemophiliacs to treat themselves at home. He said, we have this new drug that's not approved by the Food and Drug Administration yet, but with your permission, we'd like to give it to your son. He told me, he said, we feel like this drug will enable hemophiliacs to live almost a normal life. So I was like, oh my gosh, yes, yes, you can, you know, give him factor, you know? And they said, you know, it has to be given by IV. And I said, that's fine, <laughs> you know? To be told that your son has a severe condition that most are crippled by the time they're 12 and don't have a long lifespan. I mean, I felt like... Almost three times a week, Jeannie would inject Ryan with factor eight concentrated, a product created from pooled plasma of as many as 20,000 different blood donors. This weekly infusion contained to be ingredients that hemophiliacs lacked for sufficient clotting. Okay, this product called Factor 8 could actually stop the bleeding or it can actually prevent the bleeding from even starting. This treatment had become increasingly common among hemophiliacs during the 1970s. It had given those afflicted with this illness an entire new lease on life. So before factor eight, hemophiliacs always had to just live with pain and they always had a bunch of emergency room visits. They often had to be relegated to wheelchairs, crutches, and lengthy hospital stays when bleeding started. Other hemophiliacs were just permanently disabled from relentless pressure on joints, but not after factor eight. Factor eight allowed them to have some sort of real life they was able to inject themselves with the factor eight and continue their day. So with that, every hemophiliac was taking factor eight, but factor eight did not cure pneumonia. So now that we know a little bit about factor eight and what Ryan was actually taking, on December 17, 1984, 13-year-old Ryan had to be admitted to the hospital because he had started having symptoms of pneumonia. By that time, he had a temperature of 103 degrees. Instantly, they took him straight into the ICU. The Riley Hospital. Dr. Kleiman met me uh, at the head of infectious disease at Riley Hospital. And he said, we feel like Ryan might have TB cancer or AIDS. And I mean, I knew nothing about AIDS, but I, I just assumed that there it had to be cancer or something, not that I wanted him to have cancer. And they said they wanted to do a biopsy. And I said, well, Ryan's a severe hemophiliac. I said, he's not supposed to have any surgeries. And Dr. Kleinman told me, he said, this child's going to die if we can't find out what's wrong with him. 
So I signed the papers, Ryan went into surgery. There was no AIDS test at that time, so they sent the results to Denver, Colorado, where the results came back that he had pneumocystis, which said he had AIDS. They realized that Ryan's blood T-cell count, instead of it being 1,200 or around those numbers, Ryan's count had dropped to just 25. Jeannie demanded that they was to test Ryan again, and also she requested a test for herself and for Andrea. And among so many other questions, Jeannie asked the doctors, when did he contract the AIDS virus and how long did he have to live? They wasn't able to answer the first question, but the second question, they told Jeannie that Ryan had up to six months to live. So Jeannie was determined to tell Ryan herself and she was gonna wait until after Christmas. She wanted to make sure that Ryan enjoyed Christmas because it could have been his last. And in the car that night, Jeannie told Andrea if anything was to happen to Ryan, she figured out a suicide pact for the two of them to go along with Ryan. Andrea, she really wasn't afraid because she felt that she knew Ryan was going to get better and he would be okay because this was her big Superman of a brother. Jeannie, she blamed herself. And when her mother was trying to attack the gay people, saying that it was their disease, Jeannie told her mom that if there's anyone to blame, it was Jeannie herself to blame. She was the one that gave Ryan the gene, and she was also the one that gave Ryan the factor eight. That's really something to have to carry around with you as a mother. So on Christmas Day, while Jeannie and Andrea was at the hospital, they found out that someone broke into their house and stole all of the Christmas gifts, including Ryan's new computer. So the only thing that year that the kids was able to open up was the few stocking stuffers that Jeannie had in her bedroom hidden. So later they found out it was the meth head neighbors that broke into their house. And that's only because they saw the kids outside playing with Ryan and Andrea's toys the next day. But unfortunately, there was nothing that Jeannie or anybody can do about it. So the day after Christmas, Jeannie decided that she had to tell Ryan about his illness. So it was the day after Christmas. I really wasn't planning on it, but I said, Ryan, you know you've been really sick. He said, yes. I said, they say you have AIDS. He said, am I going to die? I said, Ryan, we're all going to die someday. We just don't know when. He goes, let's pretend I don't have it. I said, Ryan, we can't do that because we have to take these precautions to keep you from getting sick. My daughter, Andrea, she goes, Mom, that's not what he means. And Ryan said, see, Mom, she knows me better than you. Ryan wanted to pretend that he didn't have AIDS simply because he wanted to be a normal kid and he didn't want nobody to treat him as if he was sick, nor did he want anybody to treat him any differently and be afraid to come and approach him. And also around this time, he was asking for a dog constantly. And that's something that the doctors told him that he couldn't have because of the germs. Also, at this same time, Ryan wasn't doing nothing but surviving off of pop or soda in some of the parts of the country and frosted flakes. So by February, Ryan was already home and Jeannie had surprised him with a dog whom Ryan named Barney which later died from a hit-and-run accident driven by a police officer. This kid just couldn't get a break in life. So Ryan started feeling better, and he was feeling a little lonely at home, and he wanted to get back in school. He wanted to see his friends. But news had got out that Ryan had AIDS, 
because the reporters found out about it and they printed it in the town's paper. This was the time before it was illegal to share anyone's medical condition or personal information. Little was known about HIV and AIDS in the early 1980s when the mysterious illness was quickly growing to epidemic proportions, experts couldn't quite yet explain what was causing some people's immune systems to stop functioning. At that time, medical professionals had found that the virus was spread mainly throughout four different groups of people, homosexuals, intravenous drug users, Haitians, and hemophiliacs. So six months came and went and Ryan started feeling better so much so he was ready to go back to school and his doctors cleared him to return. Even in early 1985, it was common knowledge that HIV and AIDS was not an airborne disease. So Ryan posed little threat to the students, faculty, and the parents of Western Middle High School. So when the small town parents found out that Ryan was trying to go back to Western Middle School, they started a petition and 117 parents some which didn't even have children in Western Middle School. And 50 teachers signed that petition to formally ban Ryan from school and threatened a civil lawsuit if he was to be readmitted. So on June 30th, 1985, when Ryan requested to be readmitted in the school, James O. Smith, the superintendent, denied it. Instead, they gave Ryan a telephone to listen in to the class lesson. But the problem with this is that Ryan really wanted to see his friends, and that's really all he wanted to do. So in August 1985, the White family sued the school district. Jeannie figured that the testimony from the few medical experts was all that it would take to get Ryan readmitted in school, but the battle drug on for months, and the longer it took, the uglier it got. What they were trying to do is continue to drag it on wishing Ryan would die. The cashiers at the grocery store, they were afraid to touch Jeannie's hand, so they would place her change on the counter in front of her. And then there would be whispers behind her back saying it was God's punishment and it was a retribution for being gay. Just to remind you, this is a 13-year-old boy. The kids had cruel jokes that they were telling about Ryan White. Undoubtedly, they heard it from their parents. They were saying that Ryan contracted the disease because the family wasn't good Christians and that's why Ryan wasn't cured. So you know when you go to church and a minister tells you to turn to your neighbor and hug your neighbor and say something or whatever the case. When they did this in Ryan's church, no one hugged Ryan. Everybody bypassed Ryan and just ignored him pretty much. No one wanted to wish him well. Every time Ryan coughed, people would turn around to see how close he was to them. And they, it was just really an alienating thing. After church, they kept their children from speaking to Ryan or even going near him. That next Sunday, the White family was asked to either sit in the very front pew or the very last pew. So everybody knew exactly where Ryan was at all times. Isn't that very Christian of them? Even my own church who... I'd been, I taught Sunday school for, for 10 years, two to four year olds, and I'd been going there to my, this church my whole life. To see how the Christian community even reacted was just overwhelming to me. How, when I thought my faith and my, my, my support team would always be my church, and to see that it was not there. So when Ryan was able to go back to school, him and his mother decided to agree on some extra precautions. 
And it was things like using a separate bathroom, separate water fountain, skipping gym, and also using disposable plates, utensils, and trays. But then that backfired because the parents found out about it and they started asking, if he's not dangerous, then why does he need all of these special precautions? You just can't please everybody if ignorance is leading the crowd. Half of them actually went and pulled their children out of school and tried to open up their own school. This is wild. I don't think he should be here. If people with chicken pox and measles can't come, why should he? There's been a lot of rumors that um, when he gets mad, he spits on people. You guarantee that my daughter will not get AIDS by helping. If you can't, then he shouldn't be in school. I don't want to take the chance of my child being right next to him and maybe accidentally being sneezed on. On the first day of Ryan's return, children and their parents was outside with picket signs yelling at Ryan. Alongside reporters, there were cruel jokes being said about Ryan and his illness. Needless to say, these kids heard it from their parents first. You know, I'm the only one. I throw my tray away instead of putting it on the thing. and I'll go over and throw it away in the trash and people just stare. Why do you do that for? It makes you feel kind of like you're all by yourself. Kids would tell cruel Ryan White jokes and when they saw him walking down the hallway, they would put their backs to the lockers and get out of his way. But Ryan, he tried his hardest to ignore all of this accepted bullying by the administration and the students alike. Ryan calls me from school and I said, what's the matter? He said, when somebody's been in my locker, when I open my locker, the, my books and folders all have fag and other things in them, wrote on them. And I said, Ryan, give me the principal. And he said, Mom, he's not here. He said, they're at a meeting at another school. I said, give me the vice principal. He said, Mom, they're at a meeting at another school. I said, Ryan, there has to be somebody at that school. He said, Mom, there's a secretary here. I said, Ryan, give me the secretary. I told the secretary, I said, I've never called a press conference in my life, but I'm about to call my very first one. You have five minutes to get him a new locker, a new folder, or I'm gonna have every media in the country at that school. And Ryan calls me back about 10 minutes later. He goes, Mom, everything is cool. He said, I got a new locker, I got new folders. He said, really, Mom, everything is okay. After he returned to school, the parents filed a case against the school board and the doctor for taking Ryan back. The parents even tried to get Ryan taken away from Jeannie, saying that she was using Ryan for financial gain and not trying to get him well. Because at this time, Ryan was getting so much notoriety from everyone from Michael Jackson to Elton John. Because of lack of education on AIDS, discrimination, fear, panic, and lies surrounded me. I became the target of Ryan White jokes. I was labeled a troublemaker, my mom an unfit mother, and I was not welcome anywhere. Ryan was going around the nation educating students and their parents about the dangers of AIDS and how it's contracted, just so they wouldn't be as ignorant as the residents of Kokomo, Indiana, in the year 1985 but there was no evidence that Jeannie was unfit. Ryan was more than willing to share what he learned about the disease to anyone who cared to listen. However, nobody really wanted to hear what anybody, even the professionals, had to say. So the lovely people of the town of Kokomo, Indiana, they flattened Jeannie's tires, they busted out some of the windows in the White's home, 
and they also shot up the home where Jeannie resided at with her two minor children, one which was very, very sick, but good thing no one was home at the time. After that, Ryan told Jeannie that he didn't want to die in Kokomo, Indiana, and he saw a cemetery in Cicero, Indiana, where he told Jeannie that that's where he wanted to be buried at because it looked so peaceful there. So with the help of donations and Elton John, Jeannie was able to purchase a home in Cicero, Indiana. Ryan also liked the school that welcomed him as one of their own. They weren't afraid to shake his hand and Ryan White had been shaking a lot of hands in the late 1980s. His legal battle with the school system made national headlines and magazine covers and caught the attention of a lot of celebrities like Elton John and Michael Jackson. Ryan White had become a household name. He appeared on daytime television. He made cameos in his made-for-TV movie called The Ryan White Story. Michael Jackson bought him a brand new car, and Ryan also attended the Oscar party with Nancy and Ronald Reagan, the former president who failed to publicly mention AIDS until 1985, after 5,000 people, mostly homosexual men, had already been killed by this disease. I asked Ryan, I said, Ryan, if you knew a factor had AIDS in it, would you still take it? He said, I, I would. He said, Mom, it kept me out of a lot of pain. Even though Ryan said that he enjoyed the newfound fame and attention, he said he'll trade it all to be free of his illness. So in March of 1990, Ryan woke up and he wasn't able to stop coughing. So he went to the bathroom and he realized he was coughing up blood. He was admitted to the hospital with a respiratory tract infection. Ryan White was 18 years old and weighed only 60 pounds when he was put on a respirator. Ryan was fighting so hard to breathe that it was actually wearing him out. The best chance that he had was to go on a ventilator. A ventilator is a tube that goes through your nose and mouth and down to your chest. And to do this, they had to put him under, knock him out. And Ryan knew that there was a chance that he wasn't gonna wake back up. So he said his goodbyes to Jeannie, Andrea, and the rest of the family who was there with him. The next week, Ryan remained unconscious. Dr. Kleiman told Jeannie that Ryan's chance of pulling through this time was only 10% and that was being optimistic. During the next days, Ryan was never alone. Jeannie and Andrea, along with family and friends, remained at the hospital. As news of Ryan's condition spread, thousands of letters, telegrams, and presents from all over the country and the world flooded the hospital room. Every day, the hospital switchboard was jammed with calls, and the lobby was overflowing with reporters covering the front page news. Elton John flew in and told Jeannie, I'm here to help. He brought bodyguards with him, and they stood watch in the intensive care unit. It was one month before his high school graduation and five years later after the original predicted date. On April 8, 1990, Ryan White died. This nation lost one of its leading figures in the battle against AIDS. 18-year-old Ryan White has died of the disease. President Bush said all Americans were touched by his courage, strength, and ability to continue fighting. There was standing room only at Ryan's funeral. More than 1,500 people attended, including Michael Jackson and Elton John. Elton John, who played a dedication to Ryan, called Skyline Pigeon. Ryan White was laid to rest at Cicero Cemetery in Cicero, Indiana, just as he requested.
He was wearing his guest jeans, a surf shirt, some Air Jordans, and the watch that Michael Jackson gave him. There's a six-foot-eight gravestone in Cicero Cemetery that marks Ryan's final resting place. It was vandalized and desecrated on at least four different occasions in the immediate years following Ryan's death. This town is 25 minutes away from Kokomo. You just gotta love the townspeople of Kokomo because you know somebody drove there to do this on four different occasions. I really hope they feel ashamed of themselves right now. In August of 1990, the United States Congress passed the Ryan White Care Act. It was a major piece of AIDS legislation that provided more than $2 billion to help cities, states, and community-based organizations develop systems of diagnosing and treatment for the infection. In 1992, Jeannie founded a national nonprofit, Ryan White Foundation, the foundation worked to increase awareness of HIV-AIDS related issues with focus on hemophiliacs like Ryan White and on the families caring for the relative with the disease. The foundation was active throughout the 1990s with donations reaching 300,000 in 1997. Between 1997 and the year 2000, however, AIDS donations decreased nationwide by 21% and Ryan White Foundation saw its donations level drop to 100,000 a year. In the year 2000, Ryan's mother closed the foundation and merged its remaining assets with AIDS Action, a larger charity. She became a spokeswoman for AIDS activists and continued to arrange speaking events through the site devoted to her son, RyanWhite.com which is no longer activated online as of October 2020. His high school, Hamilton Heights in Cicero, Indiana, has had a student government-sponsored annual AIDS walk with proceeds going to the Ryan White Scholarship Fund. We were getting ready to move to Florida, and I didn't know what to do with Ryan's room. I had left Ryan's room exactly as it was when he passed away, and I didn't want to pack it up because I knew it would never be the same. I called the Children's Museum and they said, we want it all. We want to do an exhibit to teach kids about discrimination and bullying. So Ryan's room, exactly the way he left it, is now an exhibit at the Indiana's Children's Museum. And I wanna go and see it, so who's coming with me? As we conclude our journey through Ryan White's life, we're reminded that courage has no age. His remarkable story serves as a timeless testament to the power of resilience, love, and an unwavering fight against discrimination. Ryan's legacy lives on, inspiring us all to stand up, speak out, and make a difference in the face of adversity. Let his memory continue to be a beacon of hope and a call to action, echoing through time, reminding us that we can change the world one act of kindness and compassion at a time. This episode is dedicated to the memory of my beloved big brother, Jimmy. Just as Ryan White's story reminds me of the importance of love and support, Jimmy was a source of unwavering encouragement and inspiration in my life. His memory continues to guide and inspire me to stand up for what's right and support those in need. In his honor, I share Ryan's story of resilience, hope, and enduring power of the human spirit. Rest in peace, Ryan White.
1991 and rest in peace and i miss you so much jimmy james taylor 2003 Today on Our Missing Persons, we're featuring Alea Mitchell. Alea is 15 years old, female, brown hair, brown eyes. She's 5'2", 170 pounds. Alea was last seen in Cleveland Heights, Ohio on May 21st, 2023. She was wearing ripped jeans, a gold shirt, and gold shoes. If anyone has any information regarding the whereabouts of Alea, contact the Special Victims Unit at 614 614- 525-3555 or you can contact Crime Stoppers at 614-645-7449 or visit the website at www.p3tips.com. Let's help bring Alea home to her family. All of my resources that I used for this episode are in the show notes, but my main resource that I used was Ryan White, My Own Story, written by Ryan White and Anne Marie Cunningham. I know this really isn't saying much, but it made me cry at the end. And I also watched on Tubi the Ryan White story, which was really a good story. And in the book, he said that he tried to make that movie as accurate as possible on the events that happened. So, all right, until next time, Donuts. Please stay safe, stay vigilant, and always, always, always trust your instincts. I don't know about you, but I trust my instincts more than I trust the words coming out of a person's face. Always find joy in the smallest of things. That is what we found in you. Oh.